This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, the New Orleans Public School District has ordered James M. Singleton Charter School to remove its interim CEO, citing ethics violations. The Sewerage and Water Board announced plans this week to switch its entire system to primarily run on power from Entergy New Orleans. And a federal civil rights lawsuit was filed last week by the ACLU of Louisiana, alleging off-duty police officers used excessive force against several young black men and violated their civil rights in an incident last summer. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining me on the podcast this week, education reporter Marta Jusen. Hi, Marta. Hi, Carolyn. Government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein. Hello, Michael. Good morning. Criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel's here. Hey, Nick. Morning, Carolyn. And Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hello, Charles. Good morning. Marta, first up in education, the NOLA Public Schools District issued yet another warning letter to Singleton Charter School this week. What is this one about? Yeah, so they are currently concerned about uh, Singleton's new CEO, interim CEO, I should say, uh, who moved directly from the board to become the CEO. And they're saying that that is a violation of state ethics code because uh, you are you are not supposed to either be employed or appointed to a position while within two years of serving on a board within the same agency. And what did, what's the response from the school? The school actually says because uh, Mr. Odom, who is the interim CEO, is volunteering that uh, they're in the clear. They think this is not an ethics violation uh, because he is not in an employed or paid position. Mm. I would say as to their counter argument on this, that, you know, Marta and I looked up some old ethics board opinions that deal with this uh, the other day. And, uh, you know, the, their argument, their argument that, uh, Dr. Odom is uh, is working on a voluntary basis. Does have some relevance here? Um, you know, there have been there have been a number of ethics board findings that say that you know if, if a person is allowed to you know to, to sort of get around the two year waiting period if they're just donating their services. However, the 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 remaining problem seems to be that that he was put into an official position by board appointment, which is. So it's not just it's not just that that you can't be employed um, for pay. It's also that you can't be named to a, to an official position by appointment. It's unclear how this is going to work out, but they do still seem to have that remaining problem. I also think it would have been one thing had he he's kind of assumed this same or similar position since March when the CEO and CEO resigned there. Yeah, um, it would have been one thing had he been you know, the point of contact for a couple weeks or whatever until they found or placed an interim CEO. But um, what they did, which, um, you know, I've never heard this title before, but they made him chief point of contact in that board meeting where they, you know, said that that's what he would be serving in in March. And then they put out a press release last week saying that he was now the interim CEO. You know, I think it is kind of funny that they kind of made it more official yeah they made it more they made it more official you know seemingly trying to make everything formal and crossing their i's and dotting their t's and that that might have been where they got themselves into trouble 
So this is a shot across the bow, yet another, I guess, from this, this warning letter. And they're responding saying, but wait, he was only volunteering. Does the school board then respond to that? And what's, what, what do they do? They've ordered the, the charter school board to remove him and to put a new person into place um, to clear up this ethics violation. Charles, we've seen similar ethics problems before from other people. I'm sorry, officially alleged ethics violations from the ethics board. Yeah. Not. And the school board has told schools to remove um, those people who have been accused of those violations, and I, I have never seen that happen. So this is actually uh, kind of a new move for them to kind of be out in front of an ethics violation or alleged ethics violation. Yeah, that's true. Usually, yeah, in the past we've seen it led by the ethics board. That's true. And you know, even when it was led by the ethics board, it still uh, it still took years to remedy. Like six or seven years in some cases. In some cases, yeah. <laughs> so the whole context, though, there there are other things going on at Singleton. Remind us of what else is happening. Right. So I think the district definitely is paying uh, close attention to the school, which is uh, probably why this, they're coming out so strong on this. Right. Um, this school is still um, in the midst of recovering from an alleged alleged fraudulent background checks from their CFO, who um, also had resigned, like we said, and was actually arrested for 12 counts of injuring public record. We haven't seen formal charges come down from the DA yet, but, um, you know, there are, you know, booking charges from the police that in the in magistrate court right now. Trina Reed was uh, arrested on June 1st, uh, had her, her first appearance on June 2nd, and she was released on her own recognizance. Mm. So, as you said, Marta, the uh, microscope may be one of the yeah, reasons why. Yeah, there's a microscope. And I, I would also say one thing I'd, I think I'd like to see from the, the school board here is, you know, if the administration is going to be so heavily involved. When they, they do monthly reports at the school board meeting every month, but basically what they do is say, these schools have a warning letter. These schools still have a warning letter. And that's it. Hmm. They don't even name the schools. They just put them up. They don't talk about the issues. So... I mean, I think, I think it would be nice to see, I was thinking about uh, what Nick is going to be talking about today, which was we saw a problem in the community. The city council said, you guys need to explain this to us and tell us more about it. So I would honestly love to see this actually talked about at the Orleans Parish School Board level, discussed what are the problems and you know what's being done to, to solve them and where are we at? Because some of these warnings have been just ongoing for months and even years. And they just flap out in the wind and nothing ever seems to resolve. It's un- I will say it's unclear when things are resolved to the public. That's, um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you know, in the past we've, we've, we've seen resolutions only after a series of warning letters followed by, you know, some sort of official action taken by the, by the, the school board you know, way down the road, and that action has typically been like a revocation proceeding on the charter. And in this case, the background checks um, unfolded after a series of what are what they call level one notifications, which the public doesn't find out about unless specifically you put in a records request for them. All right. And what's going on with, with uh, COVID in schools? We are continuing to see low numbers of COVID in schools. Uh, but again, like I'll point out, there's only about a third of the uh, cities school population in summer school right now. So uh, like not as good of a weather vein as we had in the past. Okay. Right. And probably, I mean, maybe a third of school of, of teachers working right now. I mean, maybe even less, I would guess. Right. And summer school is starting to wrap up. So, so we'll see what those numbers look like again next week. Okay. All right, Marta. Thank you. Thank you.
Michael, this week, Mayor Cantrell and Entergy officials announced a plan for the sewerage and water board to go to nearly all Entergy power. Explain what the announcement was. Yeah, so this this announcement uh, has been in the making for a little while now. At the baseline, what it is, is a $74 million project to build a new Entergy substation right next to a key um, sewerage and water board facility, the, the Carrollton Water and Power Plant. Um, now that plant is vitally important because it sends power um, to both the water and sewerage pumps in the city. So the water pumps are important because they keep the water coming to your house. Um, and if that water pressure dips, if the pumps aren't working properly, that's what can trigger, you know, uh, boil water advisories, which we're very used to in New Orleans. And then on the drainage pumps, those are really vital during storms, you know, at, at, during heavy rains, um, big flood events. Um, those pumps work to, you know, literally take uh, water out of the street and pump it either out of the city into canals, places that it won't damage homes or, or um infrastructure. So yeah, so the substation will now be the primary source of energy um, for the entire system um, instead of relying on a mix of energy power and these internal, very old turbine generators that the sewerage and water board has uh, operated on its own. So basically the whole system was kind of built around early 20th century technology and a now mostly obsolete form of, of electricity. Um, but you know, obsolete other than the sewerage and water board. It's still, it's still generating a lot of its power, not all of its power, you know, using these turbines and the old, this old type of electricity, especially over the past couple of years and very especially since, since 2017 when we saw major street flooding from, you know, from summer rain in New Orleans. They have really kind of gotten into, into gear to try to rely more on the grid and less on their own power supply. And, you know, should this happen, this is a huge, huge step in that direction. Okay. And as as you said, we're, we're used to big rains, we're used to flooding, we're also used to power outages, frequent power outages. So how do they, how do they rely entirely on the grid and make sure that it's solid? Yeah, so, so currently the, the power that uh, Sewerage and Water Board gets from Entergy comes through the local distribution system. So the local distribution system are those poles and wires that you see going down every street. And basically that, that distribution system is responsible for taking, you know, big loads of power that are coming, you know, regionally and then distributing that to homes and businesses. What this new substation will do is it'll bring power in directly from the transmission system. And why that's important is that the transmission system generally is more resilient and more reliable than the local distribution system. Um, I'm not, I haven't seen updated numbers, but I know back in 2018, 2019, there were reports that showed that somewhere around 97% of New Orleans outages were failures in the local distribution system. So that could have been a, a car hitting a pole, you know, a, a squirrel biting a line, you know, it, any number of things that can happen to the distribution system. But um, it, it usually takes something pretty big um, to get at that transmission system. So like you said, a lot of people, when they saw this announcement were saying, I experience outages all the time. How is this gonna make anything any more reliable? And, and the answer again is that the sewage and water board will now be receiving energy in, in a form that none of us do, you know, in our homes. Um, yeah, so yeah. Yeah, the answer is you don't have a substation next to your house. That's, yeah, and even if you yeah. did, even yeah. if you did, they wouldn't connect your home to it. It would still right, exactly. the system and then around to your house. So 
Um, they're kind of getting some special treatment here, but um, it, it should be far more reliable. Okay. And, and I'll, I'll add that in the, the plan in, in the event of something larger, a larger, you know, system-wide or transmission-related power outage, they are, they are planning on keeping the turbines in place uh, on, on, their, on their campus. Exactly. I think they're actually keeping both the turbines and their connection to the energy distribution system. Um, so I think the, the, the connection to the energy distribution system would be redundant in, in a situation where you had a failure at that subject, um, but they were able to relay energy from elsewhere in the system um, to the distribution system, if that makes sense. Um, so they'll have, they'll have two layers of, redu of, of, of redundancy. redundancy at the plant. Okay. Yeah. At All least right. that's the plan. I, I will say one grain of salt. You know, I, I think every time we're talking about utilities, so that sewage and water border energy, um, unfortunately, the policy requires a lot of technical knowledge. Um, so, you know, it, there's always another layer of, layer of complexity that you can get in with this stuff. You know, I think this is a, a boiled down version of it. But um, again, there's always another layer of technical complexity that you can get into with this stuff. And how are they going to pay for it? Seem to be three sources of money that they're looking at. Um, so the first kind of uh, uh, set of money is $34 million to build the substation itself. Um, so those costs will be um, fronted by Entergy New Orleans um, with the plan that sewage and water is going to pay Entergy back over time, presumably with some interest on that as well. Um, so the city is claiming that neither your energy bill nor your water bill are going to go up as a result. Um, and the reason for that is that the change will save an estimated five to six million dollars for the sewage and water board every year hmm. um, because they won't have to buy as much fuel to run their generators. Um, they won't have to spend as much money, you know, fixing these very old turbines. Yeah, I mean, one thing I should add is that they're keeping some of these turbines, um, but only of the, of the ones they currently have, they're decommissioning all of them except for one, that the, the most modern one, and they're going to purchase one more. So five or so turbines that have, are very old and are you know need constant maintenance and upgrades and 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 you know equipment replacements, those are being decommissioned. So that's where the money savings are going to come from on the sewage and water board side. I think that the claim that this isn't going to end up on water or energy bills, I mean that's. I think we're way too early in the process to know that for sure, um, and it's something we'll keep our eye on. Um, you know, a, a big question anytime you know Entergy does a capital project. You know, this is how Entergy makes a lot of its money: um, investing in capital projects and and you know getting guaranteed returns. You know, somewhere around nine, ten percent. Um, you know, a year. So, again, it'll be something to to keep our eye on. Um, but besides that initial thirty-four million dollars, um, there'll be another twenty million dollars invested in state capital outlay funds. Um, so these are just funds from the state for capital investments in Orleans Parish. And then finally, $20 million is gonna come from the city. Um, what we were told is that's gonna come out of um, bond proceeds, um, upwards of $300 million in bonds that the city is gonna be issuing in the fall. So that'll come together to, to you know make that $74 million investment. I have two questions. The first one is, are they saying that neither bill will go up or that my net utility costs per month won't go up yeah so again it, it, the language was vague i don't think that there was a specific i think that the general message was that you're not going to pay more for this that this is not going to get back to the customers 
whether that's going to be offset one bill goes up one bill goes down i'm not really sure but they are trying to kind of remove this from entergy's normal kind of you know everyday operations they're they're, they're creating a, a facility agreement which utilities sometimes do with like special customers so sometimes in utility system you'll have you know one factory that eats up you know 50 percent of your energy and they might need some special arrangements or they might you know, need the, the system to produce more power, um, but the utility may not want to spread that cost out to all of their customers. So when you have something that, that is a special need, you know, utilities sometimes do this. So I know there is an attempt to try and keep this arrangement, you know, outside of the normal rate making process. Um, although again, we're very early in the process. There are a lot of, you know, regulatory hoops to, to get through before we know, you know, exactly how this works. All right. And second question, did they talk about exactly where the substation will be built? I saw I saw like a couple of comments yesterday on social media that people were concerned that this would require buying up private property near the Carrollton plant. Do you, did they talk about that at all? They did not. Um, so I'll say that there's going to be a series of city council meetings in the next couple of weeks where these details will kind of, you know, th this was a press conference. Um, in fact, after the press conference, they all tried to walk out without even taking questions until um, the reporters kind of yelled. Um, so, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't the most detailed announcement. So I think we'll be finding out in the coming weeks. Could any of this project be eligible for reimbursement if someday an infrastructure plan comes down and several million or trillion hundred billion dollars from the federal government comes to the city of New Orleans? Wouldn't this be a project that would be eligible for something like that? Yeah, I mean, Something that is, it's pretty theoretical, um, you know, if an infrastructure bill did pass, they would put out rules of how you could reimburse. I would guess that they would try to make something like this eligible. I, I will say, though, that, you know, we're, we're talking today about the power issue at the Sewerage and Water Board. Um, this is just kind of one piece of the puzzle when it comes to fixing the Sewerage and Water Board, getting the city to a place where it can withstand, you know, the flooding that we have now the flooding that we can expect with climate change. Um, so, you know, power, like Charles said before, has been something that's been pinpointed since 2017. It took a while to get this off the ground for a number of reasons, um, including that, you know, there were, what, three interim directors until, you know, we ended up with our current executive director who really got this going. Um, you know, but these things move slowly. I think, you know, talking to Councilman Joseph Giarusso yesterday, um, we were talking about, you know, once we can get the power issue behind us, that kind of opens up some headspace to get into a lot of other issues at the Sewerage and Water Board. And I guess my point being that if infrastructure money was made available, um, you know, whether or not this was available for reimbursement, um, we could use the money for plenty of other investments at the Sewerage and Water Board. Right. Okay. So you you did just allude to, to the years that it's been taking why the impetus today why is this happening now yeah it, it sounded to me like one kind of sticking point was how uh substation would be funded i know that um you know the the times had reported in 2019 they had gotten close deal to, to build this substation um but energy had been negotiating a way for them to build this in exchange for um a different regulatory concession and, and that kind of fell apart there. So I think part of it has been negotiating with Entergy because they ultimately have to agree to build and maintain the substation. I think another part of it has been, again, leadership problems at the Sewerage and Water Board, not having kind of a stable head of that agency um, until Gassan Corbin came in. And, you know, after that, they went through a strategic planning process, decided what had to happen first. I think, you know, in retrospect, it, it 
for a project like this, when we're talking about the sewage and water board, it honestly didn't take that long. Um, you know, again, this is a major project, multi-million dollars. And again, they had to make sure it fit into the long-term vision for the sewage and water board. So um, yeah, I mean, I think there were a number of factors. We also have an election coming up and this is a project that's not gonna be done until 2023, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's very true. Good point. All right. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are education reporter Marta Jusen, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Ann Muller, chief operating officer at The Lens. The Lens is the New Orleans area's first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom dedicated to unique investigative and explanatory journalism. We have a diverse set of financial supporters, including major national foundations, local foundations, and dedicated readers in the New Orleans area. Please make a tax-deductible donation to support our work at thelensnola.org slash donate. Thank you. Nick, in criminal justice, the ACLU Louisiana filed a lawsuit over security di- a security district stop that happened last summer in the uptown neighborhood of New Orleans. What's the background on the lawsuit? Yes, yeah, so the lawsuit um, involves a, an incident that, that happened last summer. Several young men, young black men, were driving around searching for a lost dog and actually encountered one of the security district officers and approached him and, and said, we're looking for this dog, could you, could you help us find it? The details of that exchange are, are somewhat disputed, but, but in any case, that occurred and, and, and then they went on their way and you know, shortly after noticed that this police officer was, this security district officer was following them. The officer called another officer for, for backup and they conducted a traffic stop. They ordered the driver out of the car and the three boys in the car all alleged that the officers, at least one of the officers, drew a gun on them during this stop. So that, that's sort of the most fundamental uh, uh, facts of, of what the case alleges, is that these officers, one, conducted an illegal stop without reasonable suspicion, and then they, they drew their weapons on these, on these young men. So the case alleges that, I believe it said it was a classic case of racial profiling, and then the use of excessive force. And what did the officers say? So the officers have, have denied pulling their weapons. The story that the officer gave to investigators, these, the, this incident was investigated by, by two different uh, policing agencies that the officers are sort of normally work for, and then they're hired as a sort of separate, it's called a, a, a detail to work for these security districts, and we can kind of get into that uh, later on. So the officers told investigators, one, that they didn't pull their weapons, but what, what's sort of interesting is that the officer who decided to, to initiate the stop after being approached by these kids basically said, you know, they came, they came up to me and said they were looking for this lost dog. I didn't believe them. They were just trying to pull one over on me. There are certain certain types of people in this in this neighborhood who I see driving around sort of like hanging out hanging out of cars and they're they're trying to rob cars. Or he said they're riding around up to no good, breaking into cars, and I've seen that before, so that made me Follow them. He also said that he ran the car's license plate. He noticed that it was registered to a New Orleans East address, which he said he found suspicious. What, what would these people be doing in this neighborhood at this time? And 
you know, that gets to kind of the broader issue brought up in the lawsuit uh, regarding these security districts and what their what their function is in, in the city. I want to talk about the security districts in general in a minute here, but this up to no good explanation, did the police officer that you're aware offer an explanation as to why he thought that kids who were supposedly up to no good were, were stopping to talk to a police officer? No, I mean, this is a point that the that the lawsuit brings up is that there's no reason that, that kids who are actually trying to go uh, break into cars would be, you know, actively seeking out an officer. Uh, he, he doesn't really give an explanation. What he said was that the kids, I think, were sort of making a proactive attempt to deceive him, that, that they may have seen him and, and you know, wanted to give an explanation for, for themselves before he I- inquired. So the lawsuit, you know, obviously alleges that, that that's a pretty dubious explanation, but that, that's what he told investigators. What, what's the justification for the traffic stop? So the, his initial explanation for following the kids was that he was suspected that they were breaking into cars. He sort of suggests that the whole thing was suspicious to him, that, you know, it was a, these kind of multiple factors of the car not being from the neighborhood. They were also driving a, a quite nice car, um, a BMW. He doesn't say that as one of the reasons, but it's kind of insinuated in the lawsuit that this could be one of one of the reasons. So that's the kind of the reason for the initial pursuit. And then what he says is that they observed the car conduct committing a traffic violation. I believe the other officer who came and joined him in the pursuit says that they had driven the wrong way down a one-way street. Now. None of this was ever documented. They didn't pull them over and, you know, write a ticket or give them a warning for any traffic violations. Um, you know, they they uh, ran the, the driver's address and, you know, confirmed that it was uh, the same one that the car was registered to uh, at his mother's house and kind of apologized to them and, and let them go on their way. So the stop itself clearly was not in response to these to, just these traffic violations. It, was, it had to do with this kind of broader suspicion about what they were doing in the area. Okay. And security officers, they're not required to wear any body cameras, correct? No. These security districts are, are quite unique to New Orleans, actually. They don't really exist um, in, in other cities throughout the country. So so the way they work is that they're set up by um, by the legislature. The, the people in a specific neighborhood vote to, to create them. And then they are people in a neighborhood contribute their tax dollars to funding these sort of private security forces. And the way this specific security district is Hurstville um, in uptown New Orleans, and they hire uh, commissioned police officers from, from various uh, policing agencies around the city. Uh, these two officers, one of them um, worked for the Orleans Levy District Police and another one worked for the Housing Authority of New Orleans Police Departments. But these two police officers are, are, are operating in New Orleans, kind of in NOPD jurisdiction, but they're not subject to NOPD policies okay. or oversight. Um, and NOPD in particular has, has sort of developed more uh, stringent and serious policies around things like uh, racial profiling and around things like body cameras, as you said, because of the federal consent decree that they're under. So one of the issues that that this lawsuit brings up is that these security districts allow allow police to operate in um, sort of this 
this liminal space where where they're policing New Orleans streets but don't have some of the same oversight. And I should note that one of these officers had actually been fired by the NOPD back in 2012 after uh, a use of force investigation. Um, investigators determined that he, he had lied about um, an incident where he had tased a man. Uh, he said he was armed, but the man had uh, apparently been disarmed prior to, to him using the taser. That firing was upheld. So I think it was it was disturbing to the family as they kind of looked into this, the family of the, of the boy who, who brought the lawsuit, one of the boys in the car, that this officer, you know, had been fired for some a, a somewhat similar incident, um, an excessive force type incident uh, years earlier and yet was, was sort of still on the street. Let, let me say too, Nick, on top of them being off duty and, and, and all the things you mentioned, we're also talking about two officers, as you mentioned, one who works normally for the Levy District Police and one who works normally for the Hano Police which means that those were the agencies um, conducting the investigations of their actions and not if they had been NOPD officers, it would have been the the NOPD, um, which, you know, is under a consent decree, has the Office of the Independent Police Monitor, you know, has various entities looking over its shoulder all the time. Um, and, And since neither of these officers were NOPD officers, we didn't, they didn't have that. Yeah. That's absolutely right. And, you know, there's some lawsuit certainly questions kind of the thoroughness of the of the investigations done by by Hanno and by the levy district. Um, and, you know, I don't know what the difference would have been necessarily if, the, if it had been done by NOPD, if there would have been a more more thorough investigation or if they uh, kind of have have a different set of standards when it comes to reasonable suspicion for, for searches. Um, but in any case, yeah, it, it was not. It was not reviewed by NOPD, and it was there was also no independent independent review from the Hurstville Security District. You know, they outsourced these things to whatever agency that the officers initially hired by. And you know, I asked Hurstville for for sort of their reporting uh, requirements and kind of their general policies surrounding this stuff, and they basically just said, you know, it's kind of up to those agencies to to handle this. And yeah, I think that 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 sort of uh, lack of clear oversight um, when when these officers are working for a private uh, uh, entity uh, was concerning to, to the family. And, you know, they, the family also last summer sort of told their story in front of the city council's criminal justice committee. And, and there's pretty clear consensus on that committee as well that there needed to be some sort of mechanism for, for ensuring that there is sufficient oversight of these officers, cohesive reporting practices um, from these security districts. And, you know, I haven't seen any any movement on that yet. I've been uh, trying to check in with, with some of the city council members to see if it's still kind of on their radar, but but they certainly seem to express, express concern at that time at least. Do you know how common it is for one police department to hire another police officer that's been fired? I don't know how common it is. I mean, I know that it's a problem that people in, in who are engaged in... in... Oh, I think you're on the right track. I mean, it's a problem we see in police departments. It's a problem we see in teaching, right? There's just, yeah. there's not this kind of crossover system that necessarily flags certain people or certain incidents. I mean, we know all the rules can be different in different jurisdictions or different school districts, but you still see a lot of movement of 
people who have been dismissed to other organizations. We've seen that locally, we've seen that nationally, we've seen, you know, NOPD officers who've left the department at least under sort of dubious circumstances if they hadn't actually been fired or formally disciplined, who, you know, moved over to other law enforcement agencies locally. Uh, I believe, I believe, you know, Hanno in this case, we have, you know, we had office, we've had officers moved to the, sh- you know, who left under um, sort of problematic circumstances, moving over to the sheriff's office, moving over to become work as DEA and investigators. So it happens locally, it happens nationally. And it's something that I think police unions say happens too, right? Don't they say, you know, if, if you know, these accountability measures become too overburdensome and officers have their hands tied behind their backs, they might switch over to departments. I don't think that's just on, on one side of the debate. Well, then another layer of that would be not just to move, not just to be fired from a police department and move to another police department, but to be fired from a police department and then get hired by one of these private security companies. Right. But, yeah, I mean, and, 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 you know, so there's some of these security districts, I'm not sure if Hurstville is one of them, it sounds like they are. That, that only use you know certified peace officers right. as as uh, as uh, for off duty details, but there are other ones that 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 contract with just private security firms. I mean, in, in in those cases where they do that, those those officers obviously don't have like arrest powers or anything like that. They're they're they they basically function more like you know security guards who um, you know keep an eye out on the neighborhood and call the police. Right. I mean, I think that that's what's really unique about New Orleans in this situation specifically is that, you know, if, if police officers who have been fired from another jurisdiction get hired in, in uh, somewhere else, those jurisdictions, there's public oversight of those police departments. And if that's happening, then they can, you know, uh, fire the police chief or demand more stringent hiring practices. You know, there are sort of measures that are put into place. But there's no real, you know, if NOPD fires an officer and they get hired by the Orleans Levy District and then a security district within New Orleans uh, hires them to then police New Orleans streets again, there's really no mechanism for, you know, city government or, or the public to say, you know, this is a problem and, and you can't do this. Right. Um, they're kind of outside of that, that realm of politics. Especially because these security districts are not set up by municipal code. I mean, they're 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 set up through state law and a, and a, a neighborhood election, so yeah. it, they can't even really adjust municipal code to put additional requirements on. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. Do you think there's any problem with the suit that the the three young men don't agree on whether or not guns were pulled? Well, all three boys initially said that that both officers pulled guns, and in a conversation with investigators, one of the boys at some point said. He thought maybe it was only one officer who pulled a gun and the other officer had his hand on his gun as it was holstered. Yeah, I mean, I think that the internal investigations from both departments leaned heavily on sort of the inconsistencies, some of the inconsistencies in the boys' stories. You know, there are also some inconsistencies in the officers' stories, but the sort of final, you know, judgment that was not evidence to kind of discipline these officers really was sort of around that. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be a question that is pretty heavily present in the lawsuit. There was also a a witness to the scene, uh, a man who was in his house and said he kind of looked out his window and saw saw the the traffic stop and basically said it was, you know, routine. Uh, He didn't see anything and said he did not see the officers pull the guns. He also said that, you know, his vision was sort of limited. He said he didn't 
really hear anything despite, you know, there's, there's disputing accounts between the officers about whether or not they used their sort of intercom system to pull the kids over. Uh, one of the officers said they didn't. One of the officers initially said that they did. All the boys in the car said that they did. But the man said he didn't hear anything like that. So I think there is some question, and I'm sure it will be raised in the in the lawsuit about whether or not that was a, a compelling witness, and whether or not whether or not he actually saw enough to to be able to speak to what happened. Can you give me next steps and what's likely to happen if you would? I don't know. I think it's going to take a, a long time to to play out. There's going to be, you know, I'm sure uh, the defendants are going to file a response to this complaint. Um, there will be motions for summary judgment. There will be motions to dismiss. And then I think, you know, we may get a better sense of whether or not there's going to be some resolution outside of a, outside of a trial. Yeah, I mean, and, and presumably, you know, we're going to see arguments along the lines of, A, there was nothing wrong with the stop, but B, even if there was, the officers enjoy, you know, some form of immunity because they were acting in their course, the course of their duties as police officers and doing police work. And whether or not that's legally applicable in this case, be up to the judge and maybe up to the appeals courts. Okay. Great story, Nick. Thank you so much for your work on it. Thanks, John. All right, y'all have a great week. Thank you. You too. Bye. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, Marta Jusen, Michael Isaac Stein, Nick Crastel, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news along with opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.